as you know, the focus is this topic of uh, the church. And even as I say that, I'm aware that this word church is something that will conjure up all sorts of images uh, in our minds. So I wonder if we could start with a kind of word association game. You hear the word church. I wonder if you're honest enough to say what are the first images uh, that pop into your mind. There are no wrong answers here. An old building. An old building. People. People. Lunch. Lunch. Great. That's encouraging. Family. Andy. Andy. Okay. Representing the church. Um, great. Yeah, I had things like organ, old, cold, dusty, bad coffee, strange clothing, um, all sorts of things uh, that we might have uh, associated with this idea of church. Um, some will be good, um, others perhaps less so. Um, but even if we have a bit more time to slow down and think a bit more deeply about it, uh, I wonder what we say then. So let me give you a couple more questions to get your brains going uh, this morning. Perhaps discuss with your neighbour. Um, someone asks you, what does it mean to be a Christian? What do you say? Okay, just two minutes uh, over to you. I'm going to interrupt there. I realise that is a topic, that is a big topic. We could talk about that all weekend, couldn't we? Um, before you go too deep, uh, what sort of things are people saying? Someone who has Jesus as their saviour, great. Relationship with God, wonderful through Jesus. Tea and biscuits. Yeah, not the exclusive privilege of the Christian, but certainly uh, among. Who said anything about church? Interesting. Interesting. Even knowing that you're on a weekend about the church, I thought you could. A gathering, okay, yeah. Excellent, excellent. Um, Interesting, isn't it? Um, Second question, if a new Christian came up to you, all excited about their their salvation, their relationship with God and so on, but said, although I love Jesus, I don't don't really like church, um, so I'm not going to bother with all that. What would you say to them? Over to you again.
great. Again, I'm going to interrupt before you would have probably finished. What sort of things are we saying to that person? You are the church. You are the church. Can't escape it. Can't escape it. Okay. <laughs> We're doomed. It's not sort of a project, is it? Being a Christian, you know, you need your, you need your mates, you need your Christian mates. Um, we've been reading through Hebrews in home groups, and there's loads of stuff in there about not giving up meeting, and, uh, and it's all about working together. Brilliant, the importance of meeting together to encourage one another, isn't it? Yeah. Any other things? So it's part of the identity, it's, an, it's a necessity almost for encouragement. It's God's idea to unite a showpiece for the whole cosmic realm to see that this is his product and spread his bright for his son. Brilliant, steady. We're giving again. Who's giving his talks? Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Great yeah. Great. Lots of stuff uh, we could say, isn't it? Isn't there? Um, I suspect most of us in this room um, could say quite a lot uh, about what church is in that setting. Um, indeed, the fact that you are here on this weekend, I think, shows that you value church uh, quite highly, that you think it is quite important. Um, it's quite costly in a few ways to, to be here. Uh, it costs money, uh, it costs a weekend, which I think in London is a very valuable currency. Um, and so the evidence would suggest that as a group, we already think uh, church is important. But I'm not sure we fully grasp how important the Bible says uh, church is um, very often. And as I said, this first session is, I think, the most ambitious of, of the weekend, because I want to try and trace the story of church um, through the, the Bible story. Um, and so that we see that the church is right at the heart of God's plan uh, for eternity, that the, the church is of cosmic importance. Um, So I want to begin here in Ephesians chapter 1, where hopefully you'll see that I'm not exaggerating. Um, Andy read 1 to 14 uh, for us. I'm going to carry on at verse 15. Um, I've got an ESV, sorry if that's a slightly different version uh, uh, than you have. Paul continues, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, there is a lot going on in those verses, but I want to focus in on verses 20 to 23, where Paul says some mind-blowing things about Jesus. Indeed, I think you could say Paul couldn't say anything more impressive uh, than what he says here. Jesus has been raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of God, above all rule, authority and power and dominion, above every name uh, in every age. You know, there's uh, playground arguments that kids uh, often have. The, 
or maybe you had back in the days, the, the classic my dad is better than your dad uh, kind of argument. It's quite a simple game, really. Uh, child A makes a claim about uh, his or her father, uh, and child B then has to somehow better it. So it's, you know, my dad's got two cars, while my dad's got five. Uh, and generally the way what happens is the arguments um, escalate to the point of being outrageous claims that can never be beaten. So my dad's got black belt karate, well, my dad's Superman, well, my dad invented uh, kryptonite uh, and so on. And you climb higher and higher uh, for higher positions of power in the universe. Well, this is not a toddler in the playground. This is the Apostle Paul. Uh, he's not lift, listing off fictional uh, superpowers. He's describing what is actually true about Jesus. And notice he doesn't leave any room for anyone to come up with anything better or anything more powerful. Jesus, he says, is above everything and everyone forever. That is where Jesus is. And if we're going to understand what the church is, we have to start here understanding who Jesus is. We need to have our minds blown afresh uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ. He's there now, this morning, enthroned, ruling, untouchable, immovable, unchallengeable. We need to start there because, verse 22, God put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is why we need to start with Jesus when we think about the church, because we may be used to thinking of Jesus in these cosmic terms. But here's a link that we perhaps miss sometimes, the idea that Jesus and the church are intimately connected The ruler has been given to the church, such that Paul can even use language of head and body to describe Jesus and his church. Which means that these mind-blowing truths are not just true about Jesus in isolation, but they involve the church as well. And this, says Paul, is the fulfilment of God's plan. So back in chapter 1, he had lots of mention of plan and purpose in you, but in verse 10, Uh, Among this list of blessings, or from verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Uh, I understand you guys did Ephesians in your uh, home groups last year, so maybe this uh, this this is a familiar idea, the idea of God's plan being revealed, unveiled, the mystery, the thing that was once unknown, it is now made known. And yes, Christ is central to it all, verse 10, but verses 22 and 23, the church is right there at the centre, at the heart of this plan. So even at this stage, if you learn nothing else uh, this weekend, here's one huge truth uh, for us about the church. It is connected to the one who is above absolutely everything and everyone, such that he can be called our head and we can be called his body. And that is the culmination of God's plan. And we'll think about some of the implications of that uh, later on. But what I want to do is, is think about this idea of God's plan and say, well, is this really God's plan fulfilled? Or to put that question another way, is this really what the whole Bible story is heading towards? How is the church the fulfilment of, of everything that goes on through the Old Testament, for example? So I want to go right back to the beginning uh, and trace God's plan uh, from the start. So please turn back in your Bibles to Genesis 1. And I wonder if someone would be happy when they get there to read verses 26 to 28 of Genesis 1. 
man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, Great, thank you very much. So notice God's plan for mankind, his purpose. They are created in his image. And we're not told loads about what that means, except that they are to mirror in some way God's uh, rule, the way in which God rules and has dominion. Uh, God is a sovereign ruling God. And so man here is created to do a similar kind of thing. Let them have uh, dominion. And then you get these lists of all the animals. I think the point there is to go through every area of creation, every sphere of life, whether it's uh, life on land or in the sky or in the sea, and even the little microscopic creepy crawlies, and say man is going to have dominion over all of them. In other words, let them have authority over absolutely everything in the world. There's no category of life outside the scope of man's rule. And it's not just the animals. Uh, God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth uh, and subdue the earth. So God's plan for man is that their authority should be over the earth itself. The world is going to be subdued and ruled over and it will be filled. And so that's the, the plan in basic terms. But the next question is, well, when, as we go through the Bible, when do we see this plan fulfilled? When do we see mankind kind of accomplishing what God had purposed. So we might go to Genesis 2, because here we meet uh, the first man, Adam, and and there are hints of the plan being carried out there. Uh, Adam shows some authority over creation. We see him naming the animals, which I think is a kind of power play, isn't it? Kind of showing uh, authority. He's given a helper, Eve, so they can do this work together. But you can hardly say at that point that the plan has been uh, fulfilled. For a start, Genesis 2 is only a very small part of the world. It's an area called Eden, and within Eden, there's a smaller area where God plants a garden. And it's a very nice garden, to put it mildly, but it's not the whole world. Uh, So if chapter 1 of Genesis shows us this plan for man to rule over the whole world, Genesis 2 starts off very small. One man and his wife uh, in a very small part of the world. Um, not yet encompassing the the scope of God's purpose. And this plan in miniature seems to be some kind of test, uh, some kind of probation, a possible springboard to bigger and greater things if if all goes well. And I think that that idea is, is hinted at in the two trees that are there in the garden. One of the trees is very famous and we talk about it a lot. Uh, the other one, not so much, but I think there is a clue in them. So verse 9 B of chapter 2, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there's a sense in which these two trees seem to represent two possible futures uh, for mankind. The tree of life seems to promise something even bigger and better than life in Eden. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil makes a very different kind of promise. Verse 17 In the day you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. Two trees that hint at two possible futures, one bigger and better than Eden, one meaning the loss of everything. Adam and Eve, as you know, eat of the the wrong tree. 
the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so notice what God says in chapter 3 and verse 22. Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. They ate of the tree that would bring death and they are barred at that point from getting anywhere near the tree that would have brought them eternal life. The test or the probation is is failed. I'm sure that's a, a familiar story to you. But again, what I want to focus on is this question of, of God's plan. What then happens uh, to his purpose for, for mankind? Remember the two things that he intended? Man is to, to rule over all creation and to fill and subdue creation. Because at this point, it seems that God's purpose has failed, which is unusual and a little bit troubling because Generally, in Genesis 1, where, when God says, let there be, things happen. Uh, but it seems that when he said, let them have dominion, that those words of God don't seem to have been fulfilled. Adam had the potential, but now he's out of the garden. And Genesis 3 onwards becomes about the spread of sin and death and not godly rule, not godly dominion. Man doesn't seem to have control of themselves, let alone the rest of creation, as you read on in Genesis. And this really matters at this stage in history because it it looks as though God's plan has been derailed. It looks as though the devil and human sin have been powerful enough to derail God's purposes. And if if that is true, then then the whole of of hope collapses, doesn't it? If, If sin and the devil are more powerful than God's purposes, then none of us has, has any hope. So we need a God who is powerful to carry out his plan, even where sin and the devil have sought to oppose it. And that's why it matters so much that the rest of the Bible, the rest of history, shows us that God is going to fulfil that original plan and purpose. That he's not going to have to switch to plan B and do something different. But this original plan will be fulfilled. So then we are on the lookout for this plan getting back on track. Uh, and I don't want to do an in-depth Bible overview, as much fun as that might be. But, but again, uh, trying to trace what happens to this original purpose. And as we see the Bible story unfolding and human history unfolding, uh, we see that God is still very much interested in mankind. He's, he's still all about people. So into this situation of, of, when, of uh, no people doing what God wants in, in Genesis, God speaks a promise. He speaks a promise to Abraham uh, in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. I want to look at the last of those as an example. Uh, so Genesis chapter 17. God speaking to Abraham. And notice a couple of aspects of this promise from verse 3. Abraham fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abraham, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. 
Do you see what's promised there? Different parts of the plan still in view. Abraham is going to be exceedingly fruitful as a a familiar word that ought to ring a bell. And also he's told nations, even kings, that is rulers, are going to come uh, from him. So that that the plan is still still there in view. Uh, And it remains in view all through the Old Testament, such that several centuries later, King David can write Psalm 8. Uh, So turn to Psalm 8 now with you. So going forward uh, quite a long way. And I wonder if someone could read uh, verses 3 to 8 of Psalm 8. Thanks, Margaret. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that's from the past of the seas. Great, thank you. Does that sound familiar? David can actually say of mankind, you have given him authority. You have given him dominion. He marvels at the fact that God has such a high view of human beings, given him this high position, just a little lower than the angels, a special place within his creation. Now, this is the plan of, of Genesis 1. And David is saying it is, in some sense, true of mankind. It is true, isn't it? We do exercise some degree of dominion uh, over creation, uh, over sheep or cattle, um, over dogs. We were watching a documentary the other day about a a dog show in America. Uh, And it's amazing what human beings can get dogs to do, isn't it? Dogs that dance, dogs that sniff out drugs or explosives, uh, dogs that can lead their blind owners safely around London. Isn't that amazing? Um, not so much over cats, I don't think. <laughs> I cats quietly exercise dominion over us. So, they, um, so that there is a sense in which we have some dominion um, over creation. But it isn't true in the fullest, complete sense, is it? And not even with dogs, actually. There's enough dog poo on the streets of Kensington to show that we don't have them under control. Uh, and there are some animals that we are almost at war with. Um, I went to... Um, uh, a couple of years ago, went to South Africa to visit some friends of ours who used to be at our, our church who've now moved uh, back home. And I became slightly obsessed with some of the stories about the beaches around Cape Town, which to me, I, I would see this beautiful white sand, a beautiful blue water, and you just want to kind of strip off and run into the water. And then you hear these stories about the shark attacks uh, on those beaches. And, it, and it's an ongoing battle. There is no dominion there, however much we try and put nets in places and so on. In West London, it's less dramatic, but we live in fear of moths. I don't know, do you get this in southwest London as well? Um, I've lost enough jumpers to to moths uh, to know that I have no dominion over the creepy crawlings uh, of Genesis 1. So maybe David is being a little bit uh, optimistic, or maybe he's talking actually about God's intention rather than the reality that he experiences. Isn't it amazing that God intended this uh, for humanity? Of course, that is where the New Testament, <clears throat> what the New Testament would tell us was, was going on uh, in Psalm 8. If you're waiting for this to become reality, then you need to wait until Jesus. Uh, so turn back to uh, Ephesians 1 again. 
And I hope now that having done a bit of work in the Old Testament, and sorry if that was a bit quick and disorienting, but hopefully now that these words of Ephesians 1 will mean a little bit more to us. So Jesus has been raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus has been given the dominion that we've been talking about. Genesis 1 described authority by going through every sphere of life, every area of creation, and and ticking them off. Ephesians 1 talks about authority by ticking off every kind of power and every era of time and puts Jesus above every single one of them. So animals, fish, birds, even the moths of West London cannot resist his rule. And there is no part of creation outside his rule. And I want to underline that this is true for Jesus as a man, uh, as a human being. Because we might want to object to this stage and say, well, of course, Jesus has authority. He's, he's God. He's always had that authority. Um, Jesus being powerful hasn't got any connection with the plan of Genesis 1, but it has. I find this, found this kind of mind-blowing to, to think about, but here's, a, here's part of the reason why Jesus has to be born as a human. This is part of the reason why we need Christmas. Not just so Jesus can be saviour for us, as wonderful as that is, but also so that he can be the human being who finally receives dominion and authority as God had always intended. So when we speak of Jesus seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, it is as a human being. There is a human being on the throne who's been given a dominion. And that may be new for for some of you. I want to look at a couple of verses that make this point so you don't think I'm uh, I'm making it up. Uh, Hebrews 2, first of all. And you've been in, in Hebrews in your small group, so you probably know this better than I do. Hebrews 2 and verses uh, 6, 7 and 8. It's been testified somewhere. It's my favourite way of quoting the Old Testament. Um, it's been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a while, little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honour putting everything in subjection under his feet. And then come the explanations. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, that is to mankind, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So verse 8 talks about both God's intention to give dominion, but also the reality that we don't yet see it in its fullness. So what do we see Verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honour. Now there is full dominion, the one who became human and has now received glory and honour. And perhaps more famously, Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Don't, Don't need to turn there, but let me read those verses to you. The very end of Matthew's gospel and the risen Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth, 
has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Jesus says all authority has now been given to me. And and he's not talking about an authority he's always had. This is a new kind of authority that he's now received after his resurrection as a man who died and was raised. Pause there. I realise we've covered uh, a lot of material there. But hopefully you've seen. So God's plan was for man to rule. And that plan didn't fail and collapse when Adam failed. It stayed alive until 2,000 years ago, all authority was given to Jesus. Um, But Genesis also spoke about man filling the world, didn't it? Uh, The dominion part has been fulfilled in Jesus, but what about the filling part? Uh, Jesus is uh, on the throne, he is ruling, but he's the only one, in that sense, in the the kingdom. He rules alone. Uh, So we're still looking for this uh, filling part of the plan. Well, did you notice Ephesians has a lot to say about filling? So uh, turn back there one uh, last time. Ephesians 1 and verse 23. God gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, those words are quite hard to understand, I think, but you do get a sense saying that Jesus does fill the world. He fills all in all. He fills everything in every way. And how does he fill it? It's the church that is his fullness, uh, his body. So the church is Jesus's way of filling the earth, of populating his kingdom. So God's plan is for Jesus to rule with his people. Uh, So we could go to another very famous verse that talks about God's plan and purpose. In Romans 8 verse 29, let me read these words to you. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus was the one who perfectly bore the image of God, and now other people are being conformed to his image so that he could rule with them. They could rule with him, many brothers and sisters. So why does the world not end as soon as Jesus is risen and put in place uh, and given authority? And the answer is because the church is still growing. Uh, The body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills all in all, is being filled. It's growing in stature. It's growing in number. More brothers and sisters to share his image. And how does history end? Well, we started in Genesis 1, so let's end in Revelation 22. Turn right to the end of your Bibles. And could someone read verses 1 to 5 of Genesis 22? Oh, sorry, Genesis or Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will they be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. 
There'll be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Great. Thank you very much. Wonderful verses, aren't they? The new creation. And did you see all the language of fulfilment there? All the echoes of Genesis 1, the tree that we never got to, that we were barred from in the Garden of Eden, is there in the midst of this picture of the city. And the idea of rule is there as well, isn't it? There's, you've got the thrones uh, in the city, uh, and, you, and, the, and the people of God will reign, ruling this new creation with Jesus. We will inherit all that is his. All that is his by right becomes ours by grace and gift. And so you have the servants of God, the, the people of God, uh, earlier in Revelation described as this multitude that no man can number, sharing Jesus' victory, sharing Jesus' rule. And God's plan, all the way from Genesis 1, is finally and fully fulfilled. Now, I know this may have been um, hard work. You may have a lot of questions. Um, but I wanted to start here this morning because this ought to, to blow our minds, I think. And let's, we think back to those uh, word associations we, we had at the, the beginning, or those questions we were thinking about, why does church matter? Or whatever answers uh, we might give, I, I suspect we fall short of the actual reality according to God's word, which says that church is the very centre of history. Church is the most important thing that's happening in the world. And I don't mean the church service, I mean the church as God's people. Because as soon as the church is ready, well then history comes to a close. I do think we perhaps fall into the trap sometimes of making the gospel very individual. It's about you on your own with with God. You are a sinner. Christ died in your place so that you might be forgiven and have eternal life. All of which is wonderfully true, uh, but it's not the full gospel. I hope we've seen this morning that God is unfolding a plan that is actually not about you and me as individuals. God's plan is centred on Christ. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ has been risen, exalted and enthroned. And he wants many brothers and sisters to reign with him. And that is the church. Shall I pray as we finish? Our Father, thank you that the Bible speaks of your faithfulness, of your power, uh, accomplishing your purposes. Thank you that in Jesus we see finally the perfect man uh, given full dominion. Thank you that in him we get to share in all that he has accomplished. We get to share in his victory. And thank you, therefore, that the church is bigger than anything that we could uh, quite understand. Help us to grasp just a bit more, we pray of the significance of what you are doing in the world uh, through us and through your people in every uh, tribe and nation in every age.